And I, I, I do not believe in the sort of quote unquote micro interval, um, you know, phenomenon, um, you know, short, short intervals feel easier because they are easier. And if you look at VO2, while people do intervals, like, you know, VO2 can remain quite low if you keep the intervals too short. The Triathlon Show 173. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and on today's episode, I interview Dr. Philip Skiba. Dr. Skiba is one of the most knowledgeable and sought-after persons in the entire endurance sports industry, as evidenced by the fact that he was an integral part of the team that was tasked by Nike to prepare Eliud Kipchoge and uh, the other runners that were involved in the Breaking 2 project for what uh, on the surface seemed like a superhuman feat. And uh, in addition to that, he has, uh, as we'll get into, been hired by the British Triathlon Federation to prepare the Brits for the London Olympics in 2012. He, he might be a name that uh, many of you may not have heard of if you're not following triathlon coaching and research very very closely uh, because he's uh, perhaps not uh, somebody who is uh, the most out there and active on social media and that sort of thing uh, but uh, trust me when i say that he is one of the superstars behind the scenes and uh, to me as somebody who does follow the industry very very closely he's absolutely one of the biggest names and, and dream guests that i've ever had on the podcast so so this is a, a big hit i i would like to call it just a quick note that uh, at the end of the interview, or a bit before the end of the interview, actually, uh, Dr. Skiba has to run away to uh, a patient situation, so our interview ends rather abruptly there. Uh, there are a few things that I would still have liked to, to discuss, and of course we missed the important rapid-fire questions, but I hope that this means that we might have a follow-up interview with, uh, with him in the future. We'll get right into the interview right after we thank our sponsors. First, we have Precision Hydration that uh, create electrolyte products to help you get hydrated and stay hydrated. And they take into account your individual sweat losses and sweat sodium content to do so. Uh, the best way of uh, getting started is to just take a simple online quiz that consists of 10 questions or so. Uh, that you can answer very easily without doing any sort of formal testing or quantifying. And that will give you a very good ballpark estimate for how much sodium you lose in your racing and training. And then the Precision Hydration will give you a report with recommendations for uh, what sort of electrolyte intake you should aim for, uh, depending on your target race and, uh, and so on. You can find that quiz on precisionhydration.com and uh, it's linked to you in the episode description as well. And uh, if you want to try your first box of, of Precision Hydration Electrolyte for free, use the promo code DATTRIATHLONSHOW, all one word, all caps. And also note that Precision Hydration is now available in Australia and New Zealand as well. 
Also, big thanks to Roca, which is the world's leading brand for wetsuits, triathlon apparel, and performance eyewear. You can find them on roca.com and get 20% off your entire order with the new and changed promo code TTS. Note the old one, which I won't name here, has uh, expired. So we have a new one, which is uh, simply TTS, all caps. And that stands for that triathlon show, if uh, if you wonder and if it makes it easier for you to remember the letter combination there. As you hear this episode towards the end of March, race season is uh, definitely drawing near depending on where you are in the world. And personally, being in sunny Portugal, I'm six days away from my first triathlon of the season by the time that you hear this episode and it will also be my first open water swim because here in Lisbon it's still a bit cold uh, for getting into the open water I think I actually haven't tried it would probably maybe even be possible for a short dip Uh, but not not so much training yet we're going down to the south coast to the Algarve and that's where the weather will be good enough for or the water will be warm enough I should say for uh, for triathlon racing But I'm really looking forward to it and I'm especially looking forward to putting on my Maverick X wetsuit because when I do I go from okay in the water to quite good and uh, and that's something that I always enjoy and especially so when I not just put on any wetsuit but actually the the Roka Maverick X because it's a fantastic wetsuit so the swim is actually that much more fun these days than it used to be once upon a time. And whether you go for the Maverick X or one of Roka's more entry-level suits, you can be assured that uh, the materials are all of super high premium quality. All the most important details are handcrafted and all is in the name of Roka's mission of bringing the highest performing wetsuits and apparel in general to the world and to the triathlon market. Again, you can get 20% off your entire order, whether it's wetsuits, performance eyewear, tri-suits, swimskins, buoyancy shorts on roca.com using the new promo code TTS. So without any further ado, let's get into the interview with Dr. Philip Skiba. Today's guest on that triathlon show is uh, Philip Skiba. Welcome to the podcast, Phil. No, thanks for having me. It's a great pleasure to have you. Can you uh, tell us a little bit more about yourself and your background? Uh, I started out in college, uh, primarily interested in uh, cell and molecular biology. Um, and in fact, uh, after college, I did a, a master's degree in that. But um, after some some health issues of my own, I decided to go to medical school. And while in medical school, I got very interested in uh, exercise physiology. And so, uh, pr- primarily because I was a, I was a terrible athlete, and so uh, I figured there were there were ways to better train myself. And so I started. Uh, learning more about physiology and, um, uh, and sort of finding ways that it might be able to help me. And in fact, it helped me quite a bit. It just turned out that I was, uh, I continued to be very slow, uh, in comparison to everybody else. Um, but as it turned out, the kind of things that I was working on turned out to be very helpful to athletes who were good. And so, um, it just sort of snowballed after that. Um, I began training some professional triathletes who started doing very well, started doing things like winning world championships. Um, and after that, I had the opportunity to actually develop some of the training systems used by British triathlon in the way to the 2012 Olympics where they did very well. Um, and you know, after that, it just, uh, it just became one thing after another. I got hired to work on the Nike breaking two project and, uh, 
So really up to the present, that's been, uh, that was my primary focus was doing work for Nike. Mm, yeah. Uh, what a great cliffhanger there. Uh, you started working with professional triathletes suddenly from uh, just trying to make yourself a bit less slow. What were some of the things that you, uh, that you were working on that seemed to be working well for, for you and for other athletes? Well, there were, there were a number of, of mathematical models out there that allow you to not only uh, predict how athletes might perform, but uh, understand how training stress comes and goes um, and how, in fact, they respond to it. Um, and so in working with those kind of tools, um, I was able to see that there's a lot of athletes who were succeeding in spite of their training and not because of their training. Um, you know, a lot of athletes, for example, doing far too much training. Um, and you know, for example, uh, one of the, one of the earliest examples was Joanna Zeiger who had been an Olympian. So clearly she knew something about training herself. And yet when I analyzed her, I realized that there was far too much volume, not nearly enough intensity, um, and that those things needed to be switched around. Now, um, you know, from my point of view, this sounded a little crazy. Here was a person who made it to the Olympics doing uh, things the way she did. Um, but, but that being said, um, after that analysis and, And Joanna was very open to this kind of thinking because she's a scientist. She has a PhD in genetics. So she understood the kind of the thought process. And so once um, we applied this thought process and said, okay, we need to change your training significantly. You know, that season she went on to win uh, almost every race she entered and then indeed win the world championships at the half Ironman distance and set a world record in the process. Um, so that really kind of signaled to a lot of other people who nece didn't necessarily know my name. Um, that these kind of methods, there really might be some, you know, there really might be some benefit to them. Yeah, yeah. And, and is that the same sort of thing that you uh, kept working on for British triathlon leading up to London, uh, the London Olympics, and uh, or something else? Yes, exa exactly. You know, basically, I, I wrote I wrote some of these methods into a software package. Um, you know, we did we did some 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 very custom work, um, and uh, and yeah, it, it worked. It really works remarkably well. Um, and in fact, was it an internal software package or is that something that is available somehow? Um, so some of it was available to the public. I, for a while I, I actually sold the program. It was called race day Apollo. Um, and so, uh, but after a while it just became too much to try to, you know, train athletes and manage a publicly available software package and all that kind of thing. You know, I, I, I was tech support, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. which is just, uh, which is just a bit too stressful. So eventually I just said, uh, you know, for the organizations and the, you know, the, um, You know, the Victorian Institute of Sport was using some of it. British Triathlon had their own custom set up. Um, and so um, in, we, I just decided to start supporting those organizations and just not to, to continue doing it publicly. Yeah, yeah. No, I can imagine that uh, for you personally, that <laughs> makes, makes a ton of sense. Um, so if we go back a little bit and take a big picture view at the physiology, what are the mm -hmm. physiological variables that we, we are trying to improve with, with training? Well, you've got three main variables, right? You've got um, you've got VO2 max, which is the thing everyone typically thinks of. You've got um, you know, quote unquote threshold, um, which I'm which I'm just going to refer to as critical power, um, and uh, and then you've got uh, you've got economy. Um, in other words, you know how uh, how much oxygen does it cost you to do what you're trying to do, and um, and, and these sort of Uh, this combination of factors uh, turns out to be quite important um, because the you know your VO2 max kind of sets you know the the, the ceiling right How, you know what what's the uh, what, what's your absolute physiological capacity in terms of in terms of aerobic exercise 
whereas critical power um, into a lesser state that into a, to, to, to some extent lactate threshold determine how close you can approach that final limit um, and how you know and 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 how long you can maintain something close to that limit um, you know and, and economy that there also plays an important part there you know and if you look at you know Mike Joyner's um, you know, 1991 paper. I mean, you can very nicely just calculate how someone will do with the marathon distance if you know their lactate threshold, their economy, and their view to, you know, and their. Um, mm. uh, can we say something max. about their relative importance, both uh, just purely from a performance standpoint, but also from, uh, I guess, a predictive uh, accuracy perspective in, in terms of predicting performance if we have just one or two of them? Yeah, I, I mean, the answer is basically yes, uh, all are important. You know, one of the things we learned in, in terms of doing breaking two, that, you know, we needed um, a certain combination of, of factors to make someone you know, physiologically capable of running the two-hour marathon. But you can trade. If someone has slightly better economy, you can accept a slightly lower VO2 max, for example. Um, and so, uh, because nobody nobody's going to be perfect. Just, no one's going to um, have exactly what it is that um, you know that you're looking for. Um, nor is it necessarily possible to train any one of those things. Like when you train, you're necessarily working on all of those things um, at the same time. You know, if you make somebody run enough, their economy improves. Um, if you make somebody run fast, their, their VO2 max improves, and and, and so on. Um, so I think it's, it's 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 part in part it's mistake it's mistake to focus too much on any one thing. All all of these factors are important, and a good training program is going to include things that improve all of these things. And what might some of those things be? You know, for example, uh, I mean, you know, running, uh, you know, hard intervals, for example. Um, so somewhere above the, the critical, uh, above the critical speed or the critical power, you know, let's just say, for example, two minute intervals on, on you know, on a couple of minutes rest, um, you know, repeated several times over. You know, that's sort of a classic um, workout that works on VO2 max. But if you have athletes do this, you know, for some time, you'll find that their critical power also rises and you'll find that their economy improves somewhat. Um, and so although we target, we try to target things somewhat specifically. So we do interval workouts to work on VO2 max. We may work on, um, uh, you know, longer intervals, you know, uh, you know, 10 to 20 minute intervals when we're thinking about working on the critical power, uh, et cetera. Um, but all of these things necessarily improve each other. Um, and so really the question is, what kind of event are you trying to do? Um, and that really is the thing that should guide what the training program looks like, not necessarily to say I'm focusing just on one physiological system. Mm. Uh, so, so if we talk about triathlon and we talk about, for example, um, the Tokyo Olympics where we'll have, uh, the mixed team relay, and let's say mm -hmm. that we have theoretically somebody who is, uh, trying to get into, uh, into a national team for the mixed team relay. So very short and, uh, and and fast uh fast triathlon mm. versus somebody focusing on ironman uh, how yeah. does that impact their their training program then and what they would focus on i mean necessarily there's going to be a difference in volume between those programs um you know going ironman you know um somebody once said that ironman is the last refuge of the slow of the slow <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and so when you're working on uh something like ironman for example um you know really you're thinking about much longer rides, you know, hundred mile rides and, um, doing periods of those rides, um, you know, near, near the race pace you hope to maintain or, or slightly faster than that, for example. Um, you know, when you're dealing with something shorter, um, you know, you just, you don't you just don't need that much volume. 
Um, what's more important, you know, volume is certainly important, and that provides the fatigue resistance that the muscles require. But um, you know, it's really important to be looking at you know doing quite a bit of training at or near race speed. Um, and you know, and there are there are tactical considerations as well. You know, when you're uh, you know pack riding and things like that are, are less important in Ironman. Um, you know, when you're, when you're dealing with something like, you know, Olympic distance triathlon, it's just, um, it's, it's a, it's a very different skill set, which again is something that the training program needs to focus on, right? The most important organ to performance is the brain. Um, and so you, you need to stay on top of that and then on top of tactics and understanding uh, how to handle that kind of thing. Mm. Uh, it's interesting. We had just last week, uh, we had uh, Joel Filial on as a guest, uh, who I'm sure you know mm-hmm. from your time at Bridget Triathlon. Yeah. Uh, and, and he talked quite a bit about with their squad, they, they do a lot, a significant volume for sprint Olympic mm-hmm. distance racing. And, but he also talked about doing not that much really uh, training at race pace or especially not above race pace so uh, a very limited amount mm-hmm. of of that so so how how would you and and that sounds a bit counterintuitive to, or a bit uh, contradictory to what you were saying with for this mixed team relay uh, athlete for example and and how they should be training how how would you Uh, what's your take on on that and and how how they train from just a brief description? Well, I think this kind of goes back to what I was saying before, right? That there's a lot of different ways, you know, to to, to skin a cat. Um, and so, you know, looking at uh, you know doing a lot of high volume training, provided that you have athletes that respond to that type of training, um, you know, you might have a, a fair amount of success there. Um, but to me, it seems um, you know I, I would have a hard time just having someone riding a lot of volume. And then throwing them into a race where they need to spend a lot of time uh, at or near their critical power, for yeah. example, um, you know. And, and more importantly, you know, when you're doing a lot of surges above that speed, right? You need to make breaks. You need to cover. You need to cover attacks and things like that. Um, you know, I, I think you're you're, um, you're in dangerous territory if you purely want to focus on putting a lot of miles in the legs. Mm, okay, uh, and so in addition to VO2 max, uh, the uh, critical power or, or threshold, and the economy, is there anything else in terms of the physiological background that uh, that triathletes, age group triathletes, that perhaps want to self-coach that they really need to know and understand to be able to to plan their training and under, understand their training? I think an important thing to remember is that you know, for example, running form, quote unquote, is not the same as economy. Um, You know, athletes often try to find some kind of coach that's going to help them with their form because they think it's going to make them more economical. And when, in fact, we know a couple of things that number one, in general, the body self optimizes. Um, that um, and in fact, um, one of my colleagues, uh, you know, um, I- I- Isabel Moore, uh, who's uh, still teaches in, in Great Britain, um, you know, her PhD work showed very clearly that if you take people who are complete novice runners, for example, and just make them run for six weeks, you find that their economy improves. Um, and so uh, without any coaching about their form, you know, there's many millions of years of evolution involved in, in, you know, in the human body and, and, and the body has developed self-optimization mechanisms. And and in fact, when you, when you use things like, um, uh, you know, uh, motion analysis software, things like Vicon and things like that, um, or even older stuff, um, that was done, uh, in, in the 1980s using just stop action photography, what you find is that the, the determinants of someone's running economy. Um, in the mechanical sense, are number one very difficult to identify, um, and number two, even once you identify them, the question is how are you going to get them to change them? You know, a difference of just a degree or two in the tibia, you know, the, the, the bone in the lower leg when the foot strikes the ground, is important. For example, um, and and I just I just don't believe a lot of those things are truly visible by eye. Uh, 
And I think, mm. you know, a lot of triathletes or just, just athletes in general, runners are on a fool's errand when <laughs> looking at form and thinking they're going to do something that's going to make them a more economical runner and that someone's going to give them advice in this regard. The most important thing is, is probably to run a lot. Yeah. Yeah. That, that makes sense. That makes sense. Uh, there's some things like, uh, what, what do you think about things like plyometrics and strength training for improving economy? Oh yeah. There's very good evidence that, that, that plyometrics and, and explosive strength training, um, can improve exercise economy. Um, and, and so really it depends upon, you know, who you're dealing with. Um, you know, when you're dealing with a relatively new triathlete, for example, someone who's sort of a middle of the packer, um, you know, you can have them do some very basic plyometrics, you know, box jumps, hurdle hops, things like that. Um, and, and so, uh, and a great book in this regard is, uh, uh, Bosch and Klomp's, uh, you know, running, uh, exercise physiology in practice, um, because uh, it very nicely summarizes a lot of this type of exercise. And it goes from the very easy to, to things that are more difficult. And so, so when you're dealing with a novice athlete, you know, just the simple hopping drills and things like that may be beneficial. Um, you know, Bosch and Klomp talk about some very advanced things that you shouldn't be doing without a very good strength coach with you. Mm. Um, but, but, but these things are certainly important. You know, at the very beginning, I mean, it's just important to get them running, for example. Um, but as athletes improve, I mean, you know, all the professional athletes I deal with, I mean, all of them are on a, on a, on a good plyometrics program. Yeah. The question you know, then becomes as they become truly advanced, you know, are we really getting anything more out of that? Um, and I genuinely don't know the answer to that question. Right. Right. Do, do you work with athletes these days that are, is it uh, across the board? Is it mostly triathletes and, and across the distances or, or even uh, runners since the breaking two project has stopped? Has, have you uh, continued doing work in running and what's the makeup of your, the athletes that you work with, I guess? Yeah. Um, yeah. I, 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 I'm unfortunately not able to talk too much about um, who and what I work with at the moment. Um, just, just do some, 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 uh, some, some agreements that I'm involved in, but, um, you know, I have a lot of different athletes that I deal with at this point. Um, it, it's everybody from, uh, from triathletes to, to elite level runners, um, you know, to people in other sports, but, you know, other professional sports, um, because, and I think this is the important thing is that the science is the same irrespective of the sport. Um, you know, if you understand the physiology, the way to, um, at least address physiology and address some of those determinants of performance is self-evident. Um, and so I've been very fortunate in that, you know, that forward thinking people in many different sports have come to me and said, you know, it seems that, you know, something about this, uh, you know, how can we maybe do this better? How can we change these little things? And, and I think this is the, this is the intersection of science and practice, right? Um, there's no one has the whole picture, you know, most good coaches are, you know, 90% of the way there, but there are a few things that I can offer that get you a few percent percentage points of performance that may be a determinant of whether you win or not win, for example. Um, and so, so, so I think that that's really, you know, what somebody like me offers is sort of a 30,000 foot view of, 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 you know, Hey, um, you know, there's some things that just traditionally you, you may do in this, in this sport that seems important, but it, it turns out that actually maybe this is not as important as you might think, or maybe, um, what you're doing here is, is, um, it may actually be, uh, detrimental. And so why don't we tweak this a little bit? Why don't we change this a little bit in terms of your training? and see yeah, how the yeah. athletes do. And this is the thing, right? It's about two things. It's about the coach and the athlete and myself being willing to be accountable. You measure performance consistently and either the athlete is better or they are not better. Um, and if they are not better, you need to change something. And um, early in my career, this is one of the things I found to be most frustrating is that coaches um, did not like being accountable. 
um, because they like the ability to be able to, to blame it on the athlete. Oh, they didn't do this or they didn't do that. But when you're strictly measuring training and you're strictly measuring performance, you can then look. And if the athlete is executing what you're telling them to do and they are not improving, that's your fault. It's not the athlete's fault. Have, have, do you have an example of uh, of uh, a situation when uh, when somebody has plateaued, for example, with with their coach, and you have come in and found something that you have helped them tweak in their program, and then suddenly the, the athlete has been able to to break through that that plateau? Yeah, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm obviously not going to name names, no. um, but um, but I, I've definitely come into situations. Um, you know, the volume versus intensity debate um, is always uh, is, is always a good one. I think. Uh, one of the big dangers in sport is that when you deal with a coach that was formerly an elite athlete, they end up thinking that what worked for them is going to work for anybody. Um, and that's just simply not the case. Um, and so what I find, have found, what I have found very often is that, you know, athletes and coaches are working together. Athletes are asked to bend it to the coach's program rather than the coach saying what is going to work for this particular athlete. Um, and so, and like I said, you know, Joanna was a great example of that. And I often talk about her because, you know, we, we were very public about the things that we changed with respect to her training. Um, but we were able to go back in there and say, yeah, there's just, there's really no uh, intensity here at all. Um, it's really just miles and miles and miles. Um, and you know, the, you know, I, I believe it was Einstein who said, you know, one definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. Yeah. Um, and so, so I think that's the first thing I do with any athlete or any coach that brings me in on a consulting basis is I look at the training, not just in terms of weeks and months, I look at over a period of years or an Olympic quadrennial and say, what have you been doing and what has been the change in performance? And when you have someone who's plateaued, when you're training them the same way and you're getting the same result over and over again, that that's a situation that's ripe for intervention. And you say, Hey, let's just, let's just take one of these workouts um, and change it significantly. Let's give them a, a stimulus they have not seen before, um, and see what the result is. Continue to measure performance. Are they getting better or not? So on on that, uh, that's an the volume versus intensity debate is is obviously a super important one and and very interesting. Do you see that the more common thing there for on the elite uh, athlete side at least would be that they do uh, that you would like them to do more intensity and and less volume, or or is it really falling on both sides of the spectrum? And or how to it, you know it, 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 it's interesting because there 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 do seem to be volume responders and intensity responders, um, and almost everybody requires some element of both. So it's not necessarily that I may reduce the total training hours spent, um, but what I'll what I might do is say we're going to take this hour that used to be this and turn it into something else, hmm. um, and see what kind of response there is. Because no matter what you're doing, volume is important. You know, I mean. Volume is one of the is one of the main um, one of the main drivers of fatigue resistance, which is critically important in almost everything. You know, any um, you know any really endurance enterprise, um, and so you know even when you look at track cyclists, I mean they ride you know thousands and thousands of miles, even though their event is only you know um, a few minutes long, for example. Yeah, yeah, and, and swimmers, pool swimmers is a great example. Swimmers are a fantastic example. Um, although swimmer, I mean swimmers are one of the places where. Um, you know, it's often can be a little bit beneficial to, to cut volume just, just a little bit. Um, you know, we see, um, I mean, there was, there was, I think it was Costel's data back in the seventies that showed that, you know, once you get above about, you know, 25 or 30,000 yards that you're, you're just not seeing improvements in performance anymore. Um, and so yet, I mean, I have high school students that come into my medical practice who are injured or overtrained and things. 
um, that they're swimming, you know, 5,000 yards or more, you know, a day on a regular basis. Um, and so, and so th these are things where, again, where a scientist can, can intervene and say, hey, I know you think all this yardage is necessary. It, it may not be. A lot of yardage is important, but you can't do it to excess. When, when it comes to volume, uh, how important do you think uh, frequency there is? Or how, how do you uh, look at frequency versus like those really long days? For Traditionally, for example, cyclists are known to uh, mostly have been training once per day, and but do a really long, long workouts, like having plenty of those six-hour days. Whereas, uh, of course, uh, triathletes by necessity have, have a lot of frequency in their training because we have free sports. But runners, for example might uh, split their volume over two two runs or sometimes even three runs per, per day. So so how do you look at frequencies role in that uh, volume piece of the pie? Yeah, it, 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 it's very difficult to say. I mean, you know, frequency is good in terms of, uh, in terms of um, reducing injury risk. In other words, rather than stacking everything into one workout to cut it up into a couple of workouts. Um, so, so I think there is some benefit to that. And there's probably some... Also, some some amount of benefit to training in a slightly glycogen depleted state. Um, so, so th those are all the those are some of the benefits we think may occur um, with frequency. I mean, I, as a physician, I'm always looking th through things at that um, in that way as well. Um, you know, and, and so as as I've often said, you know, practice does not make perfect. Perfect practice makes perfect. And so, it's particularly when you're dealing with a runner when they start to fatigue and that they're you know they're not they're not holding their form anymore. Um, you know, those are situations when it can be important to say, <clears throat> hey, let's let's reduce the the, the 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 one session volume. Let's break it up into a couple sessions, um, at least initially, to be sure that you're able to maintain form. You're not running the risk of getting yourself hurt um, you know, or doing something silly. So, um, so I think, uh, yeah, but if I'm looking at a you know at a large scale program, there's typically an interplay between the two. So early on, you know, I'll be working um, less on volume and more on frequency. So I might say, sure, we're going to do four shorter runs rather than three longer runs. Um, and then uh, we may start to build up the length of those runs. And then we may come back to three runs for a short period of time. And as we build up the length of those, then we might say, okay, now we're going to go back to four or, or even five. So I'm always trying to play one against the other. I'm, some, I'm training some, some, some volume for frequency or some intensity for both, uh, so, some intensity for volume. Um, and trying to keep some element of balance because again, all of these things are important. You know, when you think about periodization, the athlete should always be doing everything. Should, they should always be doing some intensity. They should always be doing some volume. They should always be doing a little bit of threshold work. And the balance between them depends on where in the training cycle they are. Um, you know, you should be going from a sort of general training to specific training as you get closer to the goal event. Um, and that's how I balance things. At no point are my athletes doing no intensity and just working on volume. You know, they they always have a track workout, and even during their long runs, they often have some element of quality work. Yeah, no, that that seems to be the the dominating view these days. I think that traditional periodization is really falling out of favor with uh, with most coaches and and researchers as well. Um, so so in terms of the intensity that you do, then if we go a little bit deeper into that, and and let's talk specifically for for triathlon. Uh, you mentioned there like the, how distribution changes uh, to be more specific the closer you get to the race. But uh, how do you distribute, for example, between the different disciplines? How much intensity do you typically like to see in a program? Uh, just elaborate on your thoughts on on that very big topic of intensity. Yeah, for, for, I mean, for the average triathlete, um, every week, 
they've got, you know, they've got some kind of an interval workout. Um, and I, I, I do not believe in this sort of quote unquote micro interval, um, you know, phenomenon, um, you know, short, short intervals feel easier because they are easier. And if you look at VO2, while people do intervals, like, you know, VO2 can remain quite low if you keep the intervals too short. Um, so, so usually, you know, for example, you know, when someone in their running program, um, you know, they may, sp- they may spend some time running some 200s or something like that, but in general, their work, their, their long intervals are, are, are 400 or 800, um, you know, to make sure, because you're looking for something that's going to be, you know, get you above a minute and a half, two minutes and so on to really, um, to really drive, to really drive VO2. Um, and so, so every week my athletes have an interval workout of some kind, even if it's only a few, um, you know, if we're doing a volume period, their interval workout may just be four by 400 or something like that. Uh, you know, d- during another run one day a week. Um, and they also have, uh, at least some element of threshold work. So every week they've got to work out where they're, you know, doing intervals that are at least five minutes in length. Um, you know, if we're during a period of time when, uh, it's, you know, that's not really a focus, um, versus, uh, you know, if we're, if we're getting close to a race period in an Olympic distance triathlete, there will definitely be a period where they're doing several, you know, 10 minute intervals, uh, very close to, to, to critical power or critical speed, for example. Hmm. And how, how many workouts would you have in a, in a triathlete program? Would it be, uh, how many in the swim on the swim and, and how many on the, on the bike and, and the run, would it be like two, two, two? So the shorter and the threshold, uh, in each discipline and and is there any situation where yeah. you would have more yeah. than that or or less than yeah. that it, it depends you know there are people like i said who are sort of uh, more volume or more intensity responders and if i, if I figure that out early on I'll, I'll kind of skew the the um i'll kind of skew the athlete in that way you know some athletes are just sort of diesel they're just good and those are the people that tend to be good at longer longer events um that they can just kind of go for a, quite a long time at a relatively lower intensity and if you feed them too much, if you feed them too much intensity, they get wiped out very easily. Um, and so that's the uh, and so that's the rub is figuring out what's going to work for that athlete. But in general, in the general case with the average athlete, uh, particularly if you're talking about age groupers, yeah, they're, they're getting they're getting they're getting one one sort of interval workout, one sort of threshold workout each sport yeah. week. And and would that be like let's say because we have a lot of of age groupers that that are also very very limited on time and they might only train uh, two workouts per week in each discipline, would that still be the case? Would yeah. you still incorporate some intensity in in all of those workouts or would you always have some work make sure it depending on how much the athlete trained that some workouts are just easy or or how do you view that sort of intensity distribution yeah you know when you're dealing with a person who, who's time limited um it, it's uh um I, I typically then become more pol- polarized in approach so you know for that person i'll probably give them a uh, their longer ride and within that longer ride they're going to do some sort of um you know, tempo, what I call tempo paced, uh, intervals. So, um, I might send them out for, you know, a three hour ride on the weekend, but in that ride, they're going to do three or four by, um, by 10 or 20 minutes, you know, maybe 10% below their, 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 uh, their, their critical power, you know, for example. Um, so we can, we can get some intensity in there, but it's not at the expense of the long workout. Um, and then on another day, I'll give them a harder workout. I'll give them a track yeah. workout. Um, but again, you know, they'll do a reasonable amount of money uh, running before they stop at the track and do their intervals and then, and then a decent amount of running, you know, afterwards. So, um, you know, a workout doesn't necessarily need to be strictly just one thing. Um, you know, you, you can add quality into, into something that's a little bit of a longer workout and get significant benefits that way, particularly for somebody who's time limited. Yeah. And, and what about as, as volume increases, uh, 
then do do you need to take that how do you take that into account in terms of intensity then would you uh would you i guess somehow need to to cut down on intensity at at a certain point if you have like let's say you have you, you have a more of an elite <clears throat> athlete or or a good age grouper that trains a lot and and their intense workouts are pretty hard pretty chunky workouts let's say four times 10 minutes at threshold and 10 times two minutes for that uh, short uh, track control workout uh, w- would you see a need ever to then reduce that intensity a bit to maybe do do less of those intervals or that sort of thing yeah i mean i think um it, the question is always um and and this is something people often you know miss is that um you need to every day be checking in with the athlete and and, and simply to see how they're feeling um, you know, one of the benefits of really tracking training stress over time is that you can, com- you can compare the objective training stress with the subjective feeling of the athlete and where those two things diverge is where it's time for you to intervene as the coach. So for example, the first thing that goes wrong is the athlete goes to the track. They're still able to hit their paces, but it feels a lot harder than it usually did. That's a sign that it's time to reel it in. Um, if they get past that point, then you get to the point of performance and competence. In other words, they feel terrible and they can't hit their paces anymore. And then you know that you're, you know, you're not in a great position. Uh, you know, the advice I typically give, particularly to my, you know, sort of age group athletes or, 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 or more amateur or, or high level amateur athletes is that you should finish each of these workouts feeling you had a little bit more left in you. You know, at the end of your long ride, you should be able to say, I, I could have ridden another five or 10 miles if I really had to. Um, you know, at the end of your interval workout, um, you should be able to say that, yeah, I, I ran six by 400. I could have run eight if I really had to, um, but I didn't. Um, and, and that's the thing is that, you know, and, and one of the things about data analysis is, you know, when you, you can look at their splits and things and when you see steadily declining splits, right. That, you know, or, or worsening splits, that's a sign that this workout is not going like it ought to go. You know, power analysis always makes this very easy because I can look at their power during the, the a 10 minute interval. And if I see that power dropping throughout the interval, I know that this number one, either they're too fatigued or number two, we need to lower the power. Um, this is just too much for them at this point. Um, and, and that's really what these you know, analytical tools are good for is figuring out what's the athlete really capable of, not what they tell you they're capable of. You know, when you can look right after the fact and see, did they execute or not? And then intervene um, in order to, to try and, and solve that problem. Yeah. So what about rest and planning that in advance before before it gets to the stage when when the athlete gets overly fatigued? Uh, do you use, uh, for example, regular rest days that are uh, completely off or do you use more sort of a just very easy day approach? And, and what about programming in weeks that are significantly easier in, in the program? How, how do you think about these things? Yeah, I mean, there's two ways to do it. Um, if I have an athlete, and this is a lot of athletes, who I don't feel are going to be completely honest with me about their level of fatigue. Um, I, I'll program rest days and rest weeks very strictly um, to be sure that they're getting some recovery because you don't get better from training. You get better in the recovery from training. Um, it, that's, it, it's an absolute requirement. Um, and so, so yeah, very often I'm scheduling rest days um, and, and maybe not an entire rest week, but an easier week for sure. Um, you know, on a semi-regular basis and so using mathematical modeling and stuff, you can see when someone will plateau at their current level, of, you know, the training level that you're applying. And then when they get pretty close to that level, I can say, yeah, we're going to take a few easier days now before we begin the next, um, you know, the next more difficult build. Um, when you're dealing with someone you know, really at the elite level, who you're dealing with on an everyday basis, 
um, you can then be a little bit more um, uh, holistic about how you plan it. You know, so a training block may end up, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, a microcycle might be, you know, might be five days or maybe 10 days. Um, you know, and I'm, and, and I'm looking at their data and I'm, I'm seeing how they're responding and I can say, yeah, okay, you know what? Like, it looks like you're getting a little, you're getting a little beat up here. We're going to take two, you know, two easier days. And maybe that's not an absolute rest day. You know, maybe it's, yeah, you're going to jog 20 minutes, uh, you know, and, and, and go have something for lunch, um, you know, just to make them feel like they did a little something. You know, part of the art of coaching is what I like to call the Jedi mind trick. Um, you know, sometimes athletes get upset if they're resting. So you have to make them think that they're resting or make them think that they're not resting when actually what they're really doing is, is something so easy that it's not really providing any stress at all. Um, but in the general case, I view rest as rest. You're not doing anything. Yeah, yeah. That, that, I really like that <laughs> Jedi, Jedi mind trick term. Uh, it's uh, it's really great. And uh, and yeah, I, I think that's, that makes sense. But also, like, I think that athletes, uh, a lot of athletes listening to this should uh, uh Take, take point and, and be honest with your coaches because that that makes it a lot easier for the coach to uh, to really take into account your your situation rather than rather than having to play mind tricks with with the athletes and 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 also perhaps uh, trying to preemptively uh, schedule rest that might not always be needed if if the athlete is just honest. Yeah, uh, exactly. I mean, it, coaching is is ninety nine percent communication. You know, knowing the physiology is great. Understanding how to write a work great workout is, is fine. But the fact is most, most athletes get better with, you know, with, especially at the amateur level, with almost any training you throw at them. Um, you know, the main thing is being sure that you're talking to the person and finding out when they're not feeling good, when they're feeling sore, when, um, when things might, not, might not be going exactly right. Because if you stop it then and you solve the problem, then you can prevent an injury that's going to put them out of commission for weeks. Yeah, Absolutely. Uh, so in terms of tracking improvements, you mentioned there the accountability earlier and, and uh, seeing if performance improves. What methods for, for doing that do you prefer or recommend? I mean, in the case of triathlon, short, short sort of time trial efforts, um, you, know, you know, can be beneficial on a semi-regular basis. Um, and, uh, but, but there's lots of ways of doing it. Um, you know, you can ask someone to do something at the same or, you know, perceived exertion and see if they're getting faster, for example. Um, you know, I, I mean, one of the, one of the favorite things, uh, we did with, uh, with, um, you know, we do with, with, with elite marathon runners is a lot of times they'll do a progressive run. So the long run will start out very, very easy. Maybe, you know, for like a Kenyan, maybe even eight minute or eight minute 30 pace per mile, something extremely easy. Um, by the end of the run, you know, by perceived exertion, they're accelerating, um, to what, 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 what's, you know, sort of marathon race pace. And you look at that progression and you look at what pace that they, what pace do they end up at, for example. Um, and, and so that can be a performance measure um, in and of itself. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and again, this is something that I come back to time and time again when, when these uh, sort of examples come up. But that uh, starting out at eight minutes uh, or eight minutes 30 per mile, uh, five, five minutes, 5.45 per kilometer for these elite marathon runners that are trying to break two hours for, for the marathon uh, that uh, I think goes a long way of, of telling uh, us age group athletes that how how important it is to like not not be afraid to go slow when when we're when we are not trying to go hard and uh, that would will leave much more in the tank to go hard when it when it actually matters. Yeah, no, I think um, I think that's you know, the thing that I learned the most in dealing with the guys during breaking two was was um, really understanding that interplay between. Uh, what's easy, um, you know, and what's hard. 
and really obeying and really listening to, um, you know, their, uh, their subjective feeling that, wow, this really feels harder than it's supposed to. I need an easy day today. Um, and, and I think that was, that, that was just a really great thing to see that these guys were literally the fastest people alive. Um, were so willing to say, yeah, you know what? Like I, I need to back off today. Um, and, and I think that's, um, that's a mindset that's unfortunately very rare um, in, in elite sport. You know, everyone thinks, and, and I think part of it too, um, you know, I think you know, social media has been a real curse is that, you know, everyone is talking about constantly, you know, even in the early days of some of the bulletin boards, you look at someplace like, um, well, I won't name names, but there are popular internet discussion forums um, where, people are, where people are all, always, always talking about, uh, are talking about their training. Um, and I see what people say, but the thing is, I'm the guy who actually gets to see some of these people's training logs. <laughs> And I know they're lying about what they're doing. <laughs> so, um, yeah, sure, you, you trained for two hours today if you include the time it took you to drive back and forth, you know, to the pool and how long it took you to make your smoothie and the nap you took. Yeah, then, it, then it's two hours, you know, <laughs> but, but guess what, <laughs> you know? Yeah, perfect. Uh, what about uh, nutrition uh, in in day to day life and and also in in training? Uh, what, what's uh, fu- fueling for training? I guess what, what's your view on on that, and uh, especially for for triathletes? I mean, in general, um, the, the problem I see is not people eating too much, but people eating too little, um, and, and not necessarily eating the right things. Um, you know, for for better or you know or worse over the last. You know, 10 years, um, there has been a, a big interest in low carb and, and ketogenic diets, and all these sorts of things, which just are not appropriate for high performance. Um, and if you read people like Louise Burke, for example, I mean, really the heavy hitters in nutrition, um, you know, it, it's very clear is that um, that these kinds of diets do not pr- do not improve endurance performance, that you need to be on a, a diet with a relatively high carbohydrate content. And that doesn't mean you can eat whatever you want. You know, athletes need to eat to hunger. Um, and, and they should come to a stable weight. Um, you know, I think, you know, particularly in endurance sports, we do have a problem with it, with, um, um, you know, with, uh, with, with, uh, you know, energy deficits and, and what used to be called, you know, female and male athlete triad. Um, and so really it's crucial to, to fuel appropriately because it's not about being as light as you can possibly be. It's about coming to a reasonable weight, um, where you're going to perform at your best. Yeah, you mentioned earlier uh, training in a lower uh, glycogen state, and actually recently I saw a, a new paper I think which uh, found that that if you train twice per day, which again for many triathletes is reality, then you're you're almost uh, by default going to be in a low glycogen state in in quite a lot of your workouts. But but do you also incorporate things like any fasted training from time to time or, or any other? protocols for, for for training to to use that i guess to uh, to your advantage for the for the average triathlete it's probably not worth the trouble you know for them it's probably most important to just be training um and when, when you're getting up to uh to a to, to a higher level then maybe it's maybe it can be important to try to manipulate some of those dietary things um you know in, in particular you know like when you look at the kenyans for example like they're going out for their long run before they've you know before they've had any real breakfast for example um, and so, so they are, they are training in a slightly uh, lower glycogen state, but it's very difficult to know the absolute performance benefits of these kind of things. Um, I always err on the side of making sure people are well-fed yeah. um, because you just, you, you're just not going to train well if you don't have enough calories on board. Yeah. Um, I think the extent to which we really need to be manipulating diet in, in the average athlete 
Um, I think I, I'm, I'm very suspicious of that. Okay, so so it sounds like that there might be potentially a one percenter there that uh, maybe is there, but we we don't really know yet. But but on the other hand, you might also uh, fall uh, fall fall across the the fall from the from the edge, so so to say, if you. Uh, if you're not careful, so it's not not the the benefit risk trade off might might not be worth it. Yes, exactly. You know, I think I think for the average athlete, if you're at a healthy weight um, and you have the energy to complete your workouts, you're doing it right. Yeah. Um, you know, it shouldn't be it shouldn't be about trying to shave off every single calorie. I'd rather have you, you know, five pounds heavy and and healthy than uh, than a couple of pounds lighter and 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 then skirting on the risk of. Uh, uh, skirting on the risk of injury or illness yeah and especially from on the elite side we we hear quite a lot about these elite uh athletes that maybe struggle for a couple of years or something until they realize that they they put on five pounds and and then suddenly they they start to perform that much better in in training again uh, like they haven't done for years and and of course what follows is they start performing in in, in races so uh, they have spent a lot of energy trying to be as light as possible but uh have been yeah. uh, shortchanging their their performance uh, without even realizing it until for some reason yeah. uh, they changed their they changed something and and then things start to fall into place. Yeah, and, on, and a, lot, a lot of these athletes, I mean, they think they're doing something healthy in terms of of, of dealing with their diet. Um, yeah, I recently dealt with an old friend who um, you know has been just you know, not even an elite athlete. Just she exercises a lot. She, she's a she's a, she's a, she's a runner. Um, and then you know after years and years of this, um, found out that she had very bad bone mineral density. You know, and she's in her early 40s. And that's not a great place to be starting out the second half of your life. Um, and, and so, uh, so yeah, I mean, I think always, always, always health has to come first. Yeah. Um, the fact is, is that almost none of us are in a position that we are going to um, going to go out there and win an Olympic medal or are going to have some huge endorsement deal where we're going to make millions of dollars. Um, the fact is most of, most of us do sport because we enjoy sport. Um, and, and that needs to be the focus. It needs to be the force focus doing something that you love in a healthy way. That chasing the last one percent of performance is almost never worth the potential risk of doing that. You know, for a person who's not a professional, who's not at the at the very pointy end of the field. Yeah, and especially when we don't know if that final percent is, is even there in the first place. Uh, exactly. So, are there some other common myths or misconceptions in in endurance sports that uh, that you would like to take the opportunity to bust or discuss? Yeah, I mean. You, you really, there's, there's, there's so many of them. I mean, for me, one of the most important things I talk to people about is supplements. Um, you know, Ron Mon, uh, you know, who's really one of the preeminent physiologists of, uh, of his generation, has, has a really good line, which is that if it works, it's probably illegal. And if it's legal, it probably doesn't work. Um, and, and, and that's very true. You know, we know there's a very limited number of things that benefit athlete, athletic performance. We know that uh, high carbohydrates work. We know that to an extent, dietary nitrate works. We know caffeine works. Um, and, and there's not much beyond that that's, that, that's legal or safe. Um, and, and so, you know, people who are endlessly taking vitamins, who are endlessly taking these different types of supplements, um, I mean, we know that they don't work. They've been tested and, and shown not to work. Um, and so, and a lot of times when things do work, it's because they're contaminated with something else. Um, you know, over the years, I've seen many high school athletes who get referred to me by a primary care physician with funny liver function tests. And uh, that's one of the, what's one of the signs someone might be on oral steroids, for example. And so I started asking them, are you taking steroids? Are you using anabolic agents? No, 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 no. They, they swear up and down that they're, 
um, you know, that, that, that they're not doing anything illegal, they're not doing anything crazy. And in several cases, you know, I've had their supplements tested and I found them contaminated with anabolic agents. Um, you know, very often a lot of these things come from factories in China or, 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 or the third world someplace and, um, and, and they're contaminated with things. And the reason why they work is because they're contaminated with something illegal. Mm. Wow. Yeah. No, that's, that's not a situation that we want to get into, but there has, have been several age group uh, cases as well where uh, people have been uh, busted for, for doping in recent years uh, for, in many cases, supplements that, that were contaminated. So, so they weren't knowingly taking any, any illegal uh, drugs. But, but uh, yeah, that's definitely... That's, I mean, again, that's really a sad situation. And what you need to be thinking about is um, what are the potential results to the rest of your life? You know, if I, as a physician, turned up positive for some kind of ridiculous, you know, performance-enhancing drug, what does that do to my job? What does that do to my reputation? Or if you're an attorney or you work for the post office or whatever, um, you know, I mean, these things could have serious effects on the rest of your life. Yeah. Yeah. What, what about other myths or misconceptions? Uh, anything else than supplements? Um, I mean, the, the other big one is, is, of course, diet, which we've already discussed a little bit. You know, this idea that we're going to do a ketogenic diet and it's going to make me Uh, burn fat better and perform better can i just uh, ask one follow-up on that in in terms of because some people say that it's uh it's more of a health or a lifestyle choice but what's your view on the evidence in terms of if we disregard endurance performance completely and just view it from a uh, from a normal general population general health perspective what's uh what what do we uh, does that change anything yeah i mean just when you're thinking about just just health i mean when you look at weight loss for example And you compare things from everything from the, um, and Mike Joyner from Mayo loves to tweet about this. When you look at everything from Weight Watchers to low carb to, to whatever, what you find is that um, diets work because they're calorie limited and it doesn't matter what it is. It is going to result in a similar weight loss and a durable weight loss provided you stick to the diet. Um, there, is no, there is no magic diet. Um, We do have good evidence that the diets that are very high in saturated fat are not good for you, um, that they do help accelerate heart disease and, and, uh, and cardiovascular disease. Um, and that doesn't magically change because it's the flavor of the month. Um, and so, I mean, you know, the example I always like to use is that open your mouth and look in the mirror. You have got the teeth of an omnivore. You have got, um, you know, molars that grind up grains and things like that. You've got incisors to cut meat. Um, and, and you, you know, so evolution is telling you something, right? Like, like many primates, you are meant to eat everything. Um, and I think we do ourselves a disservice when we suddenly think that we're going to outsmart millions of years of evolution and say, oh, if all I do is eat just meat and cheese, that's going to make me healthy. Um, it's just, it's just not the case. Eat a balanced diet, not too much, eat enough green things, um, you know, and, and you're, you're going to be, and, and do some exercise and you're going to be okay. Um, you know, I just don't think there's a lot of uh, hay to be made um, through through any of these magical diets. Yeah, I 100% agree. Uh, so go on then. What, what were the other things, uh, myths and, or misconceptions that you, you had in mind? Yeah, uh, I mean, the other major myth is that you know, people think that they can execute the training program of some great athlete and that they will also be great. Um, and I can't tell you how often my inbox has been full of people. Well, someone so is doing this. I read on this website that this is their, this is their key workout for the week. Um, and so, uh, you know, I mean, a, a great example of this is, is, you know, when we were working on breaking two, 
um, you know, Elliot Kipchoge published some of his workouts. Um, and immediately I had, I had athletes talk to me about trying to execute these workouts. I mean, his first workout of the year, when I showed up in Kenya at his track, he was doing 12 or 16 by 1200 meters at about 430 per mile pace. Now that is going to kill the average athlete. Um, you know, and that's a really ridiculous example. Um, but the point is, is that great athletes are, are genetically superior to the rest of us. Um, they have certain innate gifts that make them great at what they do. Even if Elliot had never ran, he would still run faster than 99.99% of people on the planet because it's the way he's built. Um, and, and so the important thing is for athletes to understand that there is no magic. There is no easy way. There is no secret. The secret is there is no secret. You need to find what works for you and execute that and not be swayed by whatever you read on the internet this week or whatever you think some great athlete is doing. Perfect. Anything else in, uh, in that area? Myths or misconceptions? No, no, that, that's, that, that's, that's, yeah, that's a good list. Uh, what about, uh, in addition to, to tracking performance I, I just, and be, I apologize. I'm, I'm getting, uh, I'm getting paged here. I'm going to need to run away to see. Okay. Okay. Um, so, uh, sort of I thank, thank you so much for, for your time then Phil. And, uh, it was uh, really great to, uh, to have you on and, uh, yeah, it, it was, uh, an excellent discussion. And I think that the listeners will get a lot of value from it. Good. Yeah. And if you ever want to catch up on, on some more things at another time, we can certainly do that. I apologize for having to abandon shit. Okay. No problem. Talk to you soon. Bye. Sure. Take care. Bye. All right. So that was uh, a bit of an abrupt end to the interview, but uh, we got most of the way there. I had uh, just a few questions left on my list. Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about what investments that might be the best for age group athletes and comparing, for example, uh, lab tests and assessments, coaching and guidance and uh, with uh, purchasing gadgets and equipment. Also, I wanted to talk a little bit about whether there are any specific training metrics or key performance indicators that uh, uh, Dr. Skiba thinks are particularly important. And uh, those were the main things, a couple of small things other than that. But we, we didn't miss that much. And uh, I hope that we can have uh, Dr. Skiba on again, because I really enjoyed the conversation. And uh, it is uh, clear why, uh, why he is so sought after and in in this industry and uh, working on some pretty, pretty uh, high level projects, including the, the breaking two, of course. So some of my key takeaways, I noted down some, some things that really stood out to me here. First, finding what works for you as an individual is super important. We talked, among other things, about there being uh, people that respond well or not so well to high volume versus high intensity and the other way around. And uh, that's the thing that you and your coach really need to figure out for you as an athlete and not uh, on the basis of uh, another athlete, but really for you. And on that note, we also um, discussed there that uh, 99% of coaching is communication uh, or some, something along those lines, 95. I don't remember what uh, Dr. Skiba said, but uh, regardless, it's super important. And that's something that we've talked about many times before. Uh, me and my coaching partner, James, we take this super seriously and, and we have communication as our North Star in the coaching that we do here at Scientific Triathlon. Uh, but uh, please note that as an athlete, you have just as much of a responsibility to contribute to that as the coach. Because if you're not communicating to your coach, it's it's difficult for the coach to 
to be effective with their communication with with you and and it can't be a one-way street it's a it's a two-way street so keep that in mind that communication is uh is super important and uh, to give you just a practical example I'd rather that you uh, give me your report of how, how your workouts went and, and don't upload the workout data than just get the data and not the report. Uh, the next takeaway that I have is that uh, as a good uh, general starting point for how to incorporate intensity in uh, the average triathlon training program, uh, Phil mentioned having one session of shorter intervals per week per discipline. So these would be intervals of uh, uh, let's say 1.5 to 4 minutes in duration and then one second session per week per discipline of longer intervals so those would be 5 to 20 minutes and the final takeaway here and uh, we're probably going to get hate mail for this but it's that diet thing again Uh, but really keep things healthy but simple don't be restrictive in terms of total calories or in terms of macronutrients definitely don't fall for fads neither diets nor supplements you can find the show notes for this episode as usual on that triathlonshow.com and leave your comments or questions uh, for the episode in, in that comment section down at the bottom of the page uh, i have a few house cleaning items before we go first i want to really thank you so much for all the reviews ratings and reviews that you guys sent in for the podcast in february it was by far a record month for new reviews, so, so he was absolutely fantastic, and I read every single one of them from all the iTunes stores, because I get an aggregator email that at the end of the month that, that brings them all to me, and so really I'm super grateful for all, to all of you that, uh, that rated and reviewed the podcast. I'll read uh, a short one, and uh, this one is, says, the best five stars, and it's from 1364Ron uh, in the United States. And Ron writes, thank you for providing one of the two podcasts that I get excited about when a new episode comes out. Amazing, that's all I can say. Thank you again for what you do. Uh, so thank you for, so much for that, Ron, but... Uh, Man, what a cliffhanger. <laughs> Please email me and let me know what that other podcast is because just in case it's something that I'm not already listening to and I'm subscribed to, I will absolutely have to check it out because I'm a podcast junkie myself and consume a lot of podcasts. Uh, the second house cleaning item that I have is that I'm looking to bring on somebody to the scientific triathlon team uh, for a part-time role uh, as uh, a customer support uh, role, I guess, and uh, the person should be highly motivated, highly service-minded, and an excellent communicator, both verbally and in writing. And also, they need to be fairly knowledgeable in triathlon and have a can-do attitude. And some, it needs to be somebody that can figure things out without too much hand-holding. It's a remote job and it's a flexible job. So you can do it from anywhere in the world and uh, at flexible hours. But uh, uh, And I'm not sure exactly how much, but probably we're talking about a starting point of one to two hours per day on weekdays. But those hours you can do whenever you want. So uh, it's fairly flexible and still fairly open. So we can discuss the specifics of it. But if you're interested or you know somebody interested, send me an email to michael at scientifictriathlon.com and that's michael with a K and we can take it from there. Finally, big thanks to our sponsors, Roka, that you can find on roka.com and uh, you can get 20% off your entire order with the new promo code TTS, nothing else, TTS. 
And thank you to Precision Hydration. You can find them on precisionhydration.com. You can take the free online sweat test to get your individual hydration strategy and get your first box of electrolytes for free with the promo code that Triathlon Show, all on word, all caps. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.